You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome to the podcast John Matthew, Community Engagement Editor for the Christian Century Magazine and a pastor at Harbor Online Community. Welcome, John Matthew, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. It's great to be here and great to meet you. Well, the way we got connected is I got an email from you from the Christian Century magazine, and I guess I had signed up uh, with you guys on your on your email before. And you asked, what the, I can't remember what exactly was the question that you sent out to just the group. Yeah, I send out a different question each week, and you've. You, I think I don't remember which one you're thinking of because you have written back thoughtful responses several times. I think to questions that I've sent out, I've always enjoyed hearing from you when you respond to the, the the weekly email. So I'm not sure exactly which one you're, you have in mind right now. Well, I think it was a something question like, uh, um, what's one key word that has shaped your theological journey? That's and I right. think yeah. I responded, I think I responded that it was, uh, the, the key word was apocatastasis, which is a word that sometimes people know and sometimes um, people don't know. And so then I explained that um, I think what I wrote is, I've come to believe that if we don't have a Christian faith, which features a God who is triumphant finally at the eschatological horizon, then Christianity forfeits the idea that we have a God who can be considered to be good in any meaningful sense of that word. I believe this is one of the main reasons that people are leaving the Christian faith behind in record numbers. And then so I, I sent that off to you, and then I got the response. Thanks for your reply, David. I agree. So then I was yeah. like, huh, okay, well, <laughs> let me uh, let me follow up with that. And so um, then I uh, then I, I, I replied back for a little longer email about why I thought this was an important uh, conversation to have. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you said, basically, you don't have to convince me. I already think this is yeah. an important conversation. And so... Um, maybe let's just like, there's a lot of things, a lot of places we could start, but maybe we just start there with, um, how did, how did you get involved with the, with the Christian century community, um, involvement editor? And then how did you get to this, uh, sense that Christian universalism was an important or apocatastasis was an important discussion? Yeah. And I just had mentioned the joke before I forget that, uh, of all the people who sent me one word answers to that request. And, and I got a lot of responses to that particular email. You, yours was the longest, I think, and the most technical. So um, you win the award for uh, the, <laughs> the, the one word response to the Christian. Well, that, that's email. a pretty, that um, one word can encompass, can encompass, it's a pretty powerful word. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. So uh, to answer your question, your bigger question, um, I think, I spent many years as a conservative evangelical Christian, um, a professional one. I was employed as a missionary, and then I worked at a large megachurch, what I think what qualified as a megachurch, a multi-site uh, 
church. And um, I did both of those jobs in total for about 12 years. And hell is a, is a big part of the theological imagination of that tradition. Mm-hmm. And it was frankly a big part of my, my work, my ministry. I wasn't going around doing fire and brimstone sermons to people. I wasn't telling people explicitly, like, you are going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. But it was a motivator we always use with each other. Like the stakes are high. People's souls are at stake because we're trying to pump each other up to go do evangelism, to go do proselytization. Mm-hmm. And so we had to, to do that. We had to convince ourselves if we don't do this, there are going to be dire consequences. And so in a long, painful breakup process that I had with evangelicalism, one of the key pieces for me was to let go of this belief in hell. And I know some of the work that you do, I think, if I understand your work correctly, that's really, really powerful and helpful is to take the Bible really, really seriously in, in a scholarly approach even and to, mm-hmm. and to show that we don't need to believe in a hell. We actually ought not believe in one uh, when we read the scriptures this way. But well, that was just let me just sure, insert something there. What Sometimes people say, well, you don't believe in hell. And I say, well, I don't believe in a hell of eternal conscious torment or final annihilation. But I do believe in, a, yeah. in an outer darkness, in a blazing mm-hmm. furnace that creates weeping and gnashing of teeth that's, that brings people to the existential crisis and awareness of whatever evils that they have committed and which helps them to... Mm-hmm experience truly uh, what they need to experience in order to come to their senses, you know, kind of a, uh, mm-hmm. the prodigal son uh, kind of journey. So it's, I just say, um, because I don't want to give up on the word hell because people say, oh, well, I guess you don't believe in heaven either. So I say, no, I believe in a hell that is ultimately, it could be very long and very difficult, but is ultimately restorative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank you for clarifying that. When I'm, when I was, everything I just said about my own journey, every mm-hmm. use of the word hell that I said, I yeah. specifically meant eternal conscious torment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, and those are synonymous. Those are synonymous. Hell equals eternal conscious torment. Exactly. In, yeah. In that setting. In the evangelical mind. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I learned to let go of that. I didn't do it through a deep, deep exegetical uh, mining of the scriptures and learning the Greek. I mean, uh, years later, I went to seminary and did learn some Greek. But I, I arrived at universalism for myself just through a spiritual internal process of of discontent and pain in leaving my old tradition and realizing that the God I had worshipped for many many years, I could no longer worship. And so my view of God really needed to change. And one of the pieces that over time I came to just change about the way I view God um, was no longer believing that a God that would send people to eternal conscious torment is a loving God. That isn't love. And no matter how you contort it, no matter what you say about uh, Uh love or whatever, I I, I can only believe in and, and worship a God that it, who is love. And I can, I can't understand how love can be the primary characteristic 
of a God who sends people to eternal conscious torment. So for me, it was, it was that kind of move. Then I revisited the scriptures and just, just looked for what are other readings of these texts that work for me that Mm -hmm. I, I know this is not, this is what I'm saying would make evangelical 21 year old me uh, (laughs) right. Like handling the scriptures this way, very pragmatically, but that's all I can do. Right. I need a reading of this text that works for me. Um, so I, the, the, the faith community that I help lead is a fully online church, Harbor online community. And all the people who are there have wounds, some kind of wounds from church. Um, many of them have been fundamentalists or conservative evangelicals. Um, there's different forms of trauma. We have a lot of LGBTQ folks at Harbor and they have very particular traumas they have faced in church settings. But so I don't think like to your email that you sent me, I don't think that the belief in eternal conscious torment is the only or necessarily even the predominant thing that is driving people away from the Christian faith. But I think it's a big one. I think a Mm -hmm. lot of people have problems with this. I do think there are other huge issues about gender and sexuality that right now are driving people away from the church. But, but anyway, at Harbor, uh, it is very, very common for people to not only say that belief in hell has had a negative effect on their spiritual journey. They often say that it has caused significant trauma that they continue to carry. So it's not just a matter of it may drive people from the faith. I mean, it may, it may very truly ruin people's lives to believe in eternal conscious torment. Um, and so that, that's what I'm seeing in, in my community. And so we, we are ministering to each other at Harbor. We are, we are trying to teach each other, help each other learn to let go of beliefs that are dealing death to us instead of bringing life. Like just learning to let them go and replace them with healthier beliefs that allow us to have tr- trust and faith in God and in ourselves and in each other. Um, so that's some of the work I do. And you asked about the century. Um, I'm not sure how I got this job at the Christian Century. I it's, well, hold on. It, maybe let's, it, let's hold on. Let's hold on yeah, before sure. we get to Christian Century. Let's hear. I want to hear yeah. a little bit more about the. How does somebody get in touch with uh, Harbor? Is it Harbor Online? Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's a little confusing to say out loud because the the words are in a different order for our website URL. Okay. But to check out Harbor, you can go to onlineharbor.org. So okay. it's called Harbor Online Community, but it's onlineharbor.org. And yeah, you can learn a lot more about Harbor there and you can sign up for, for a Zoom call with me. You can sign up for our weekly gathering, our email list. There's different ways people can get involved. Okay, well, that that's important because a lot of the people that contact me uh, through this podcast uh, tell me that, well, now I've come to this view of Christian universalism, but I don't have any fellowship. I don't have any pastoral support. Mm-hmm. I don't have a community anymore. So this could be a really good resource for for somebody like that. So, so if somebody said, hey, I've been listening to the Grace Saves All podcast, or I've come to this conclusion, um, and they called, and they, and they, what would their experience be if they went online to this? Uh, yeah. It's a great question. So our Zoom calls are every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern. They're about uh, an hour and a half long. And this is this is what our version of like a worship service, but it looks and feels, uh, just frankly, almost nothing like going into a, a physical church and having a worship service. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost all dialogue based. 
So we, in that 90 minutes, we, we, we say hi to each other. We go into some small icebreaker rooms where we just chit chat for a little bit about some funny or silly little questions to get to know each other better. Mm-hmm. Then we come back to the large group. We have a, a sharer. So someone will share five to 10 minutes about their own journey. It could be their overarching spiritual journey they're on, or it could be a specific moment or or key decision or factor that led them in a new direction in their, in their faith. Mm -hmm. Um, We open up the floor for Q and a, and um, then the the main thing we do time-wise during our gathering is we have a, a dialogue. So one, typically one of our pastors will, we'll do a scripture reading or two and we'll look at some theology And because most of us are coming out of and trying to detox a little bit from the white conservative evangelical Christian spaces, Mm -hmm. we tend to look at theology that's being done, that's contemporary, uh, that's being done by women, by queer theologians, by black liberation theologians, Latin American, Palestinian, where we, we, we try to expand our theological horizons beyond just the work being done by straight white men from the U S and from Western Europe, as good mm-hmm. as some of that work truly is. Yeah. Um, let, let me, so, uh, let me just interject right here that one of the things sure. that I, that I've done on the podcast is I've said, you know, basically I'm trying to talk to people across the spectrum and say, you can come to, let's say you're a conservative uh, evangelical. You can come to Christian universalism. And if you want to keep your uh, inerrancy view of scripture, if you want to, uh, keep all of your social, uh, conservative social uh, feelings, uh, you can. You don't have to. Uh, embracing a Christian universalist view does not mean that you have somehow now entered some community that is that is uniform, because Christian universalism mm-hmm. is one of the most diverse <laughs> communities that I've ever encountered, because you can go at Christian universalist from you know, really very conservative evangelical who basically is almost has almost identical views, except for the part where they believe God will eventually save all. And Mm -hmm. all the way over to somebody who you could say might would have fully deconstructed and like, and like, you know, I'm done with eternal conscious torment. I'm done with uh, LGBTQ, uh, having questions about that. I'm, you know, like all, Mm -hmm. almost like everything that they can deconstruct from, (laughs) they they have deconstructed, you know, they have deconstructed from. So, yeah. um, So this would be good for somebody. If you feel like you're really like deconstructing from a lot of things, this could be a good, Mm -hmm. a a good place for you. It might be a little disorienting. if like, Hey, I, I kind of just want to take a step and talk about Christian universalism. You could get into a little bit of a, a bigger conversation than you might think that you're getting into. Absolutely. Yeah. So I should, I should, yeah, that's a great point. And I should clarify maybe for some of your listeners, um, for folks who are really still love conservative evangelicalism, they just feel like they've got to, they've got to be universalist that they, they got to kind of make that change. That's tough if they if they're communicating to you that they can't find community anymore, they can't find spiritual community. If their universalism now excludes them from the community they were a right. part of before, or they have to self-select out of it, then that's tough because yeah, Harbor's probably not going to be the perfect fit for those folks. Yeah, yeah um, Jerry Bosch, Jerry Boschman has a has a group called Hope for All Fellowship Connection, and that group is pretty much evangelicals that are staying evangelical 
just except for that mm-hmm. one part about uh, embracing yeah. a, a universal restoration. So there are different kinds of fellowships for people who are they're wanting to talk about universal salvation or universal reconciliation, but mm-hmm. but there but but there are some there's a variety of groups then that are gathering around it and the different issues that people are talking about in those groups. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and for for Harbor, um, universalism and 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 letting go of eternal conscious torment is just one of, as you mentioned, a much larger project of yeah. faith deconstruction, and I would say faith reconstruction as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the folks in kind of the deconstruction movement or community, they are a little leery about talking about reconstruction because they're afraid it's going to be prescriptive, and it's going to become the same kind of gatekeeping an authoritarian Christian leadership that they knew back in the faith that they've now deconstructed. We try to do a very open and gracious reconstruction work together. So, so I I mentioned this only to say that we are not just abandoning all the beliefs and saying like, we've deconstructed all of it. We are, we are always (laughs) talking about, we're always talking about scripture together and talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus for us but we have to let go of, of a number of these toxic beliefs and practices that, that at least harmed us in our mm-hmm. own journey. So yeah, but, but a big part of that has been hell. We just recently had a whole conversation about heaven and hell um, and it was really fruitful. And yeah, but a lot, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people reported, not just I've had a tough time with this, but really significant trauma a- around teachings that they've been told about, about hell for the, pretty much their whole lives. One of the things that's, that I've discovered is that sometimes deconstructing from tra- trauma and from hell, kind of a toxic hell message, doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's going to come running all the way over to embrace Christian universalism. For some people, that seems almost like going from one extreme to the other extreme. And so mm-hmm. I understand that. I've got some reasons that I think that Christian universalism ultimately is the most coherent way to put everything together theologically, but it took me a while to get there. So I can understand if somebody doesn't want to run from one position they think is extreme to another position that they think uh, that they think might be extreme. But there's a there's a lot of folks they kind of need a space to deconstruct or reconstruct, however you want to think about it. They need a, a space just to be. And not maybe even have to put anything yeah. new together and yep. just to kind of chill out for a while and just kind of sit in the mystery and just say, you know what, I'm not sure what I think, or if I'm ever even going to try to put together anything that's got, um, you know, the prescriptive parts to it, I may just hang out in the mystery um, yeah. and not commit myself to anything. Having been burned once, yep. I don't want to commit myself to some other point of view that then somebody else is going to come along and deconstruct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the thing about deconstruction that is scary to everyone, to the people who do it, and to the maybe the loved ones of people who do it, who who themselves are staying in, in what they view as a more stable religious tradition, mm-hmm. um, it's unpredictable. It's a wild kind of unpredictable journey yeah. because to your point, it could lead to a, a different form of maybe a Christian faith that's, that's, that's very much about church and spiritual disciplines. It might end up looking a lot like the, the practice they used to have, or it could be 
I'm done with church forever. I'm never stepping back into a church ever for the rest of my life. Um, it could be converting to another religion. There's there's so many different paths. And like yeah. you said, it could just be a wilderness of mystery for a long time, indefinitely long time. Um, yeah, or or I love or, about or a green or a green pasture of mystery. You know. Yeah, exactly. It could be a wilderness. Oh, yeah, or a pasture. Exactly right. <laughs> um, what, what I appreciate about Harbor is that we're trying to make as much space for as many people as possible, so that we we have a variety of opinions about scripture among the people at Harbor. Um, mm -hmm. A variety of opinions about any number of things. I will say, <laughs> and just to clarify again, of who would maybe feel like they belong there and who wouldn't, belonging is our main value. So we we really want anyone who needs Harbor to feel like they can come be part of it and belong there. Um, I will say that because of the particular harms that a lot of our um, LGBTQ plus members have sustained in church settings, we draw a really hard line about dehumanizing language. And so we, we consider like um, anti-LGBTQ theology to be dehumanizing. So we really are not okay with people voicing that in our gatherings. So, and I, and I just, I say that just for your listeners who might be wondering if they right. want to check out Harbor. Um, right. If that's, a, if that's a guideline that they can live with, then we would enthusiastically welcome them to come check out our community. Um, if not, it probably just isn't the right fit. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, one of the things that's been interesting for me in this journey is, um, so I'm, I, you know, was a minister um, in a small town in uh, northern Arkansas for a while here. Well, for a number of years, I guess. So I kind of learned to talk to people that were more in the the way average people think and talk about the Bible, and a lot of people with evangelical backgrounds. So. I just got used to talking with people sort of in the terms that they were used to. So my theology pretty much has developed along the lines, like I'll talk about salvation, like grace saves and say, which sometimes even that language of salvation, if you're on the, like the progressive side of things, people don't even like that word too much. And mm -hmm. sometimes on the progressive side of things, if you even talk about like heaven or hell, that's like, oh, those are evangelical words. We don't even, <laughs> we don't talk yeah. about like what happens after, after death. We're just focused on the, the heavens and hells that exist right here and trying to help people. And um, so anyway, it's just, oh, and another thing is that this Christian universalism, what I'm trying to say is that the atonement or the, the reconciliation that happened in Christ was so triumphant and victorious that will, it will ultimately encompass everybody. Well, for people that are concerned that that no one religious tradition would act as if it was sort of uh, the uber tradition that you know that rules the rest of them, uh, that seems mm -hmm. a little little much. So, what I try to tell people is actually, from my point of view, you might I might come across to you as a kind of a liberal in some way, but actually from my point of view, I'm pretty conservative because. I'm using the scripture in a very straightforward kind of way. I'm, I am using words like heaven, hell, grace, salvation. Um, and, and I'm saying that, that Christ really did accomplish something that affects all of humanity, that all of humanity will eventually understand and appreciate. So that's, that gets me involved in, I guess, what they call the scandal of particularity, even if mm -hmm. all will ultimately be saved. 
it seems kind of scandalous that I'm saying that it's, oh, it's all going to come through, come through Christ. So it's funny because on progressive, in, in, in progressive settings, I come across as, man, you're a little bit narrow thinking that, oh, everybody's going to save, be saved through Christ. Shouldn't we just focus on the here and now and making people's lives better and not trying to elevate the Christian tradition over other traditions? Meanwhile, on the conservative side, I come across as, what do you mean you don't believe that there's a hell that people are going to, you know, to be annihilated or be tortured forever? I mm-hmm. mean, that's escaping that is what Christianity is all about. And you're saying you don't even believe that exists. You know, are, are you even Christian? Or are you some kind of heretic? So I kind of find myself on a little bit of an island. <laughs> that I, yeah. I don't have and, and it's funny on this on this place that I that I've gotten even though I have a more mainline Protestant background, most of the people that I'm running into are, uh, the majority of them are evangelicals. It's just, it's, or Eastern Orthodox, or, uh, but I do run into some, you know, mainline Protestant folks too. It's just been a real surprising journey to see who has, who I've run into and Mm -hmm. who who has found some resonance. in this, I w- that all makes total sense to me. When you describe your particular theological commitments and beliefs, I it doesn't. Yeah, I would expect you to get the exact kind of reception you get from all of those different groups. And it also doesn't surprise me that you find yourself in more conversations with evangelicals than others, because my because not only do the do the mainliners, the liberals like me, uh, view view your message the way that we do, but also it's like. I don't need to talk about it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like, I hope we are all saved. Like, and let's focus on the here and now, you know, that's a very right. simple, that's a very comfortable. Whereas the evangelical, because so many stakes are placed on the afterlife, it really matters to get it right to the evangelical yeah. perspective. And, and not to mention a lot of them are struggling under the, again, real inconsistency between a loving God and eternal conscious torment. And so I would imagine Hearing from someone with some theological conservative commitments like you, who is beating the drum of universalism, I bet that they are drawn to the, that conversation. I would, I would guess. I bet you get a lot of great conversations with evangelical folks. Well, it's funny, and it's, and it's, it's uh, as far as like on the mainline Protestant side, the the most of the people that are interested in talking to me are lay people, because mm. they have gone to mainline Protestant as a, they've left evangelicalism and they're in mainline Protestantism or or they've kind of grown up in mainline Protestantism, but they say, you know, my friends talk about hell and I, we don't ever talk about it. And so I'm kind of interested in like even having a conversation about it because it's something we don't ever talk about. Yeah. And so that's been interesting, but it's like mostly like clergy and and people in the academic settings have not been overwhelmingly, I'll just say to be nice, have not been overwhelmingly interested in this conversation mm-hmm. because they're, they've been more interested in like process theology, liberation theology, different yeah. kinds of theology that where the eschatological horizon is right now and not somewhere off in the future. And also the idea that God will ultimately save all on the, um, on the more progressive side seems too deterministic, seems too limiting of God's mm-hmm. freedom and people's people's freedom as well. And in the, uh, yeah. also, I think, uh, you know, the liber- in the liberation theology, I've studied some liberation theology in seminary and I've thought about it some in the past, but 
a big question in liberation theology is not what is the ultimate end of the oppressors? You know, are we really concerned what happens to the worst oppressors in the history of the world? And almost to even spend a lot of time thinking about their ultimate um, end seems a little out of place that we need to spend our time right now thinking about how to deliver the current oppressed and almost would it even be fair? I mean, on the, on the evangelical side, you think of like people that go to hell that create, that sort of commit like, like a immorality kinds of sins on the progressive side. It's like the people that go to hell are the, are the ones that are the great oppressors, the, the people that deny people civil yeah. rights and justice and, you know, and, and it's almost like, how would it ever work to finally even have this whole group of people all together? How would that even work? How could the oppressed and the oppressors and the, and the victims and the, and the perpetrators all finally, how could that even work that we could, I mean, it's almost like you need hell just to drain off the scum at the bottom that nobody could live well, with right. forever. Right. Yeah, you would that, need like a temporary weeping and gnashing of teeth from the oppressors before you could have fellowship at the table together. Well, that's, I think I mean, it, that's the idea. Well, I think it's almost more than that. You almost just need them gone forever. I mean, for some people, the idea yeah. that I'm ever going to be in some kind of eternal state with the people that oppressed me or abused me or did that, they can't even imagine that has ever been right. happy. But I do think it helps the in the early church, like Origen and Clement of Alexandria, they imagined ages of purification would take place before somebody would rejoin the community of the blessed. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting what you said about the mainline interest in theology. I think that, you know, you go all the way back to like Rauschenbusch with like the social gospel, and mm -hmm. he always makes this delineation between the social gospel, which he's obviously advocating for, and like speculative theology. And he just, he has no time for speculative theology. Right. You know, that, that, that same strain I think is alive today. This, this preference for like liberation theology is like, it touches the ground. You know what I mean? Like it changes the world. Whereas speculative theology is still speculative all these years later. And I, I think I would, I would, I would guess to many mainliners, like compared to evangelicals, you are giving a better answer, a significantly better answer to a question that they're just not interested in. <laughs> that would be my guess. I think that's pretty right. <laughs> yeah. But here's but my I don't question. know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in it, though. As speculative as it may be, I'm interested in it because of the trauma. That's the, So to me, it does touch the ground. Like, yeah. it matters because believing in eternal conscious torment is so damaging that we have to learn to unbelieve that kind of thing. So right. that, and that's I, why I, as a, as a progressive mainliner, I'm still very interested in these questions. Well, and one, and you cannot, um, what I'm saying to people is there's a better way to put this together. And I'm not trying to take your Bible away from you. And I'm, I'm not trying to take the church. I'm not trying to take the church tradition. I'm not trying to take your Christianity away from you at all. You can still do all of this and have plenty of biblical support, plenty of support in, in church, early church fathers, if that's important to you. Um, there's plenty of resources for this that, that you, that, that, you, that you can have. So don't, you know, don't feel like you can't do this. 
And for people that have never been really traumatized about hell, it's hard for them to understand it and why that's mm -hmm. important. And I think I'm kind of in a little bit of a middle ground. I didn't grow up going to church, but when I was like growing up, I was junior high and high school. I grew up in Irving, Texas, and it was a big part of the Bible Belt. And I didn't know that. I just thought that's what people thought about in church. But my friends were trying to save me a lot and because and I didn't go to church. And they were trying to save me from going to hell forever. And I was trying to ask questions about, well, why are we going to hell forever? And why is God so upset? And and they just basically they just basically said, listen, you just need to believe this thing so you don't go to hell forever. Don't. It's in the Bible. Don't ask too many questions. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to go to hell. And they were really, everybody was really concerned about all of this. And the, the preaching that I heard when I heard it wasn't like, uh, well, here we are at so-and-so church, and we have one particular way of looking at the Christian faith, um, but there are other ways of looking at it. So, you know, if this way of looking at it doesn't appeal to you, you know, don't give up on the Christian faith. Uh, there are lots of different ways to practice the Christian faith, which are very faithful, but this is our way of mm -hmm. thinking about it. No, the way they presented it was, this is it. This is what the Bible says. You know, we've, over yeah. hundreds of years in a Protestant Reformation, we have we have finally distilled what the Bible actually says, yeah. and this is it. And if you reject don't this, pay attention to the, you don't pay attention to the 199 other Protestant denominations in the U.S. who disagree with us. <laughs> We've arrived at the correct reading. John, how cynical of you. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, But they presented it to me, at least in the time that, well, what they said in outline was, um, God is holy, and human beings have fallen into sin because of Adam and Eve. And since God is holy, um, he has to punish our sin. Uh, but mm -hmm. he found a way that he could put the punishment on his son Jesus and then not, not have to punish us because he is loving. He doesn't want to have to send us to hell forever. But his justice, re you're nodding your head. I can see you nodding your head like you know this line. But his, I've heard this rendition of the gospel many, many times. Yeah. Yeah. But his justice requires him to do it. So, he, you know, so he it, it's like a judge. If he was trying, his own son would have to be forced, you know, to put him away if, for whatever he's guilty for. So. So anyway, you need to accept Jesus as your uh, Lord and Savior so that you can go to heaven. And that was kind of the that was kind of the basic message that that I seemed to be getting from everywhere. But then there were little nuances to it, like, and then some people would say, well, and you need to be, you know, if you really want to know that you're saved, you should probably be able to speak in tongues. Or if you mm -hmm. um, if you really want to know that you're saved, you know, you should be sure that you're out there sharing your faith and you know, really living the Christian life, um, you know, that, yeah. type, that type of thing. Yeah, totally. I, I think that that's exactly the type of gospel message I received when I was young that stuck with me through all my years as even an evangelical. I think like it all, it all needs to be questioned. I mean, that's where, I, that's where I'm at. I mean, I, I still identify as a Christian and I still, I love, I love the riches of the Christian faith in my own life, but the idea, the, the, the first idea, the idea that God, holiness, the holiness of God somehow entails that any human sin, any human badness, imperfection, evil, whatever, means that there must be the only possible response from God is eternal conscious torment. 
is 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 such a in to my mind now such a ludicrous starting point for framing the Christian faith. Um, so no offense to your viewers who still believe that, uh, if some of them do, but um, yeah, that's that 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 to me the fact that we just all were taught that when we were young and then accepted it uh, is sad to me now. Well, and 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 I wasn't even really taught it directly. I mean. People told me about it, and I sort of, but even like a glancing blow with it was pretty mm-hmm. traumatizing because I yeah. remember, I remember when I was toward the end of high school, and I was thinking, well, I don't believe in Christianity because, man, that God just seems so mean. And mm-hmm. I guess I don't believe in God. I guess mm-hmm. I don't believe in anything. And then I thought, well, okay you know, I need to go and go to college and get a degree. And maybe I just, I'll just put all that up on the shelf. I just won't, you know, won't think about it. But then what I found out was that I ran into, I found out that the opposite of, of, um, of faith for me wasn't just doubt, but it was despair. And so then, Mm -hmm. you know, now I'm facing, okay, I don't believe anything. I guess I believe that you just go through life and hopefully, you get some happiness, but whatever happiness you get, life gradually mm-hmm. subtracts from that until you're finally dead and that's it. And there's no meaning and there's no purpose. And yeah. uh, so then I got introduced to uh, C.S. Lewis. I read Mere Christianity and that, that introduced me to a much kinder and gentler vision of God. And I had some spiritual experiences when I reached out to a good God that convinced me that Mm-hmm. Maybe there was goodness and love at the center of everything. And then I, you know, then I found uh, the Christian church, Disciples of Christ. And it was a they, it kind of like in a way, very much like the Harbor community, because what they were saying was, mm-hmm. you can come here. Um, we just believe in God. We accept Jesus as our Savior. Beyond that, each person needs to go on their own best journey. And we try to give each other lots of room. We're not here to judge each other. And, you know, ask your, yeah. ask your best questions and don't ever stop asking those questions. And so that gave me, I think, the freedom to grow spiritually. But even, even given all of that freedom, it took me a long time, even with just a glancing blow with the doctrine of the hell of eternal conscious torment, to feel mm-hmm. like I was doing, I felt like for a long time, I felt like I was maybe doing something wrong in the back of my mind a little bit by challenging that because the people who had preached it had preached it so authoritatively that you just feel like you're doing something wrong. If you something wrong and bad, if you, if you step away from it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I don't want to narrate your, your own journey, which you just narrated part of. And thank you for sharing that, that part of your story. Um, But it sounds to me like something that I relate to in your story is a bit of, pragmatism that comes in like you know like you leave a faith tradition that's not working and you know for me it's like okay is the alternative just nothing just Mm -hmm. no belief no faith and i agree for me too the times i've dabbled in total unbelief or non-belief despair fills that vacuum pretty quickly and Mm -hmm. so in other words like atheism or total just irreligion for me doesn't work (laughs) it just doesn't work so mm-hmm. instead of like when I, when I leave one that's toxic, that, that is harming me, it's not that I really even feel like I have the option to just have nothing. I just need to find one that does work for me. And so this kind of like progressive Christianity, I'm part of the UCC now, similar tradition to okay. the disciples. Um, yeah. This, this progressive Christianity with universalism as part of it, like 
to me, this works. And so this is another area where 21 year old me would, would throw fit because what about truth? Have I just, do I not care what's true anymore? It's like, well, no, I actually, you know what I think? I think a religion that works for me, that actually makes me more loving and expansive and inclusive and hospitable, hospitable mm-hmm. and curious and, and wanting to cross boundaries to reach out to people and form intimate bonds of trust and love with each other and like help spur each other closer to the divine. To me, like that is evidence that it is true. Like the fact that this is the effect it has in my life. So, you know, whatever, call me, call me a pragmatist, I guess. But that's been, that's been part of the way my journey has worked as well. Well, one thing that happened with me too is I got to this for a long time. My theology was like a C.S. Lewis kind of thing. God will save everybody that's savable. And if there's somebody that's not savable, it's probably not God's fault. It's in some way the person got themselves involved with sin in such a way that they kind of caused their own demise and God has to respect their freedom. And so that's just mm-hmm. the cost of, that's just the cost of creation. And, and so that made sense to me. And it, it, ironically, it was because our church didn't have one doctrine that everybody had to go along with. I always said, well, my job is to encourage you to do your own best thinking, and I'll share the best that I have. But if you have your own ideas and you want to talk with me about them or challenge me or, you know, let's do it. And so I actually had somebody in that was associated kind of with the church challenge me and say, you know, I've become convinced about Christian universalism, and I, um, I, I would never give up on any one of my children, ever. And I don't think I'm a better yeah. parent than God is. And I yeah, think you exactly. ought to, I, I think you ought to reconsider this. So it was based on that back in like 2011, 2010, 2011. I thought, okay, well, it's been a while since I've thought through these issues. Let me just get online and see what's available. So I just, I got online. I ordered a bunch of books. I ordered uh, Evangelical Universalist by Gregory MacDonald, Inescapable Love of God by Thomas Talbot, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut by Brad Jerzak. And I just loaded up on all of these books. And at the same time, then Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, had come out. And it just seemed like it was this topic was just being discussed uh, kind of like all over the place. And I, and then I started thinking more seriously about it. And then I became aware of some essays uh, that David Bentley Hart had written. And just through all of that uh, rethinking of everything, I finally came to the conclusion that, you know what, on the whole this actually works better for me than the idea that, that God's going to save everybody that's savable, except for the people that aren't savable. It started just working better for me to say, no, you know what? God would not enter into a creation knowing that, yeah. that, that, that God was involving people in foreknowledge in a situation that he would not be able to rescue them from. So just makes yeah. ultimately more sense to say that no, ultimately God saves is going to save everybody. So I had that all worked out. I had all the biblical arguments, had all the philosophical arguments, but then it created a little bit of a problem for me because even though I'm in a church that allows people to come to their own conclusions and everything, people were still surprised when I started talking to them about this, that Mm -hmm. you don't, you mean you think God's going to save everyone? Well, what about Hitler? And what about about child? Right. Right. And I know that we have in this church the idea that we can have our different opinions, but doesn't the Bible talk about hell a lot? Doesn't Jesus talk about hell a lot? And isn't that, aren't we trying, isn't that one of the things that we're, I realized when, 
I didn't think that hell was as big a part of what was going on in people's lives until I started talking about Christian evangelism, because then they were like, whoa, (laughs) wait a second. What about hell? What about, what about all of that? And if there's, if there is no, if, if people aren't ultimately going to be lost forever, then why are we doing this? And then, then what does it matter if we're even Christians now? Because we're, if we're all going to end up, you know, then why are we, why are we doing this now? So it was amazing to me how, a relatively small change in my theology, just going from God's going to save everybody that's savable to God saying, to saying, no, God can save everybody. Um, just that little change ended up kind of having explosive results in, in lots of different yeah. ways. That's cool. Yeah. I, I always thought back when I was required to believe in hell for my employment and, and I just accepted it, I, I did think that the best version of hell out there the most palatable was mm-hmm. the CS Lewis version right. of it that you're talking about. I always appreciated his writings on that. And that's what I kind of believed too, uh, before I be, became a, a universalist. And um, I, I, I appreciate N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. And he sort of advocates for C.S. Lewis's view of hell as well. He doesn't right. say he necessarily believes it. He just kind of says, here's a good version of hell if you need one. Um but I like his whole life after life after death thing. This whole idea of like, stop thinking about heaven so much. Maybe we should just think about the resurrection at the end of all things, all things being restored into the new heavens and the new earth. Like that's that, that appeals to me. That's kind of what I think about when I think about eschatology. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I don't know the way around the scandal of particularity because it's not it's not okay with me. Like you said, for most liberal theologians, this whole idea of ultimately super privileging Christianity over like other religious traditions doesn't sit well with me. I'm not I'm not really willing to do it. At the same time, I do believe God will be reconciling all things and I do think it will be in Christ. So I just kind of say, like, look, I don't have the answer to this. I do think other religions are also very true and are true in some ways that the Christian tradition has just missed in its history. So I think at the end, when the restoration occurs, it will make sense to me as having occurred in Christ. And that will continue to maybe be the lens I understand it through. Maybe that will be augmented by a lot of other new layers of understanding in, in, mm-hmm. in that time. And maybe other folks from other religions will have a bringing to that experience of restoration a very different lens and it will make sense to them in a different way. Um, so that's, that's my best effort at taking a, taking a swing at the whole scandal of uh, particularity. But yeah, I guess what I've noticed is that once people, like if you come to a view and you believe that God is good and loving and finally will restore the creation that in in that you're convinced that in Christ that God has visited the world in some kind of tremendous mercy that will ultimately extend to everybody some way. Once you mm-hmm. become convinced of that, then you're free to start thinking theologically without fear. There's not it's not fear-based thinking anymore. And you're not you're not afraid Oh, I can't think about this because if I get the answer to this question wrong, I could go to hell forever. Yeah. Yeah. And you're much, it's much easier to enter into interreligious dialogue. And sort of what I say to people is I, I believe in a God of love that's at the center of everything. I see that through the Christian tradition. 
And so I see that that it will all ultimately happen through Christ. But the main thing for me is that it happens. If it happens some other way that I'm not expecting, okay, I'll I'll have to adjust to it. You know, whatever that uh, yeah. whatever that means. But in some way, I want for us to all be together. And it's not okay with me if we're not all together. So a Christianity in which somehow you were finally excluded or somebody's finally excluded is not okay with me. It it has yeah. we all have to finally be together, reconciled in some kind of loving fellowship and community that all makes sense to us. And when I say that to people, that whether, you know, if they're like Buddhist or Hindu or something, they think, well, that's a nice, you know, I haven't had people get offended with me about right. that. Yeah. I think, yeah, this reminds me again of like a religion that's true with a capital T uh, versus a religion that works and how ultimately I think they're the same thing, but we, we act like they're not. I, 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 if it's okay, I'll briefly recount a fun Facebook fight that I got in the other day. Okay. I, I've been really scaling back my my engagement with with people on like things like Facebook, where we get into like debates or whatever. But a fr- an old friend of mine who is a pastor in a conservative tradition, he had posted this little anecdote where he said, "You know, a lot of times I hear people say, I could never believe in a God who fill in the blank.'" Mm-hmm. And for me, just read it, just to pause it on his post, reading that for me, I think the obvious fill in the blank here is sends people to hell. Because that's what I've actually heard people say. I couldn't, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell or to specifically right. an eternal conflict torment. And um, so that's how, that's how I'm reading the post. But he goes on to say in this post, you know, our subjective ability to believe in something has no effect on whether or not that thing is objectively true. If, if we told a scientist about nuclear fission and, and he thought, and I think he did use masculine pronouns for this fake scientist, so I'll just mm-hmm. entertain them. Um, and he thought, oh, that's such a disturbing, violent process. I could never believe such a thing would happen. Mm-hmm. We would laugh at the foolishness of that scientist. Mm-hmm. So this is his Facebook post. And I was so disturbed by this. I was disturbed because, again, I'm thinking of a person who's in pain, who's saying, I can't believe in God. Even if I wanted to, if that God sends people to eternal conscious torment and we're supposed to laugh at the foolishness of this person, um, it's just such a non-pastoral, non-Christian, non-Christ-like, non-loving mm-hmm. response to a person. So I try to say, like, look, we're not we're not dealing with the, just the text of what this person is saying. We're dealing with the subtext. When they say, I can't believe in a God who blank. They're saying, I can't believe in a loving God who would blank, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Because the thing you fill in the blank with is not loving in the person's mind. So right. there is a logical mismatch here. So it's not like a scientist who can't believe in nuclear fission. It's like a mathematician who can't believe that two plus two equals five. Like that's what's going on here because it doesn't make sense for a loving God to send people to a lake of burning sulfur that never ends. It does not make sense, right? So uh, the pastor never responded to me, but one of his cronies that I used to be friends with jumped in and we got in like a big fight. And he was basically saying, well, you're using your definition of love. You're not using the Bible's definition of love. And I told him, well, first of all, I'm not doing anything here. We're talking about what this hypothetical person is saying when they say they can't believe in God. Mm-hmm. So of course they're using their own definition of love. 
what other definition are they going to use? They're not a believer, first of all, as we know from what they said. Mm-hmm. So why would they be adopting your definition of love that you think is in the Bible where love entails the lake of burning sulfur? Why would they think that's love? And someone else came in, and I was reminded of this when you talked about the person who talked to you, the, the crucial conversation you had, where someone said, I don't think I'm a better parent than God. Mm-hmm. This is like, we have our understanding of what love is. We live it. We love people. We are loved by people. Why would God's love be so much worse, <laughs> so much worse than our own daily experiences of human love? So anyway, thanks for letting me uh, air that that fun Facebook conversation. Well, it is it is interesting when you start presenting people like I've presented the love, you know, that 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 if God is love and God is a being in whom there is light and no darkness at all, then ultimately that love and light must prevail in the whole creation. And then I've had the response given to me, well, I don't know that God necessarily is very loving. Uh, and I don't even know that that's important for me, that God is who God is. And that's what makes God God is God just is. And God does what God wants to do. And God is sovereign. And if God wants to uh, put people in hell forever, then uh, God can do that, and it doesn't mean he's less God to me. It just means I need to be careful about what I do so I don't get on his side. Because if you read the Bible, he get he can get pretty upset, and he can get pretty violent. And um, so whatever his goodness is and whatever his love is, it's uh, I don't know what to say about that, but I just need to be on his good side. And if he's ultimately that powerful, then he's he is— He's God because he's the most powerful and that's what makes him God. Yeah. Are you, are, are you saying that this is a, this is a, an approach to faith and religion that you have had people articulate to you that they, yeah. that they hold? Yeah. When, yeah. When I was trying to explain my point of view, they were, it was like, that was their counter argument mm-hmm. is that God is God because of essentially the sheer power to be the most, the most powerful being who determines right. what happens. And yeah, if it, I cannot, I cannot imagine. I don't think I could sit here and invent a more psychologically damaging belief structure than that one that you just articulated yeah, to say like, I can't, I'm worshiping God. I'm a devout, presumably these people are devoutly religious. Yeah. I'm a devout Christian. I spend all this time worshiping and doing spiritual disciplines and going to church and sharing my faith and all this stuff. And at the core of my being, I have no idea if God is even good. Right. I don't know if God is loving. Out of fear and fear alone, I will slavishly obey this deity. I mean, that is terrifying to me. Yeah. Well, and then and then I have started to say I have started to say that if if I am after this life is over, if I'm presented with the creator of this universe and 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 they say to me, um, uh, David, well, um, you know, glad that you made it, uh, uh, but not everybody, not everybody did. And so I hope you enjoy your, uh, you know, your eternity with the people who, who made it. Then I think I would have to say, well, at this point, um, you might have created this world uh, and this experience, but I don't think that I can call you God because that's a name that I reserve for a being greater than which I can imagine. And I can, at this point, 
certainly imagine a being greater than you. So you appear to me to be more like a demiurge that I should be seeking to escape so that I can go find the true God um, who yeah. really is a being of perfect love and light and goodness and beauty. But whatever you are doesn't seem to be that. Yeah. This brings to yeah. This brings to mind to me some of the most disturbing passages in the whole in the whole Bible. And not to scandalize the biblical inerrantists too much who may listen to you, your show, but like those passages where God wants to just wipe out in the Hebrew Bible, wants to just wipe out a whole city. Yeah, and it's a human. It's it's like an Abraham or a Moses who has to stand in the gap and say like, no, God, let me teach you how to be compassionate. Like it's it's th these are difficult passages for me to wrap yeah. my head around. Like, and, and it calls to mind what you just said, like, okay, the view of God here needs, needs some revising. Yeah. The, the, the folks that I talk to that are inerrantists and universalists will say, well, it, God can judge the world and even judge people with death. Uh, but ultimately in the end, God will still restore. Even if he judges them with death in this world, he will ultimately restore them to an e eternal life. And and they, they made the argument that, um, well, like the Canaanites were just pure evil, and so they needed to be eradicated so their evil wouldn't spread. It's like a cancer. Mm -hmm. But that God would right. ultimately still restore even the Canaanites in the ages to come and, and heal them. But he just needed to get them off of the earth before mm -hmm. things got so bad they couldn't, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the things. What? Well, and like that, that's fine, I guess, for those people to think that, but it comes with a lot of risks to me in terms of yeah. how we move through the world, because now you've created a category for, for people where they're just all evil and they're yeah. evil, they're evil could spread like a cancer. And frankly, theologically, the best bet would be for them to just be wiped off the face of the earth. I mean, yeah. so, so if you think that's still a thing that can happen, I, that's scary to, to co-inhabit a planet with people who hold those kind of beliefs, you know? Well, one of the things that happened to me toward the end of my ministry is uh, I had a, a person that quit the church, and they, they uh, I, I, uh, the chair of the board of the church asked me to give them a call, and so I did. And I asked them why they'd quit the church, and they said, well, I just don't like your preaching. So I said, uh, well, you know, what is it that you don't like about it? And they said, well, you, you know, you just don't go in order. You don't use the, you don't, you don't, no, I said, you don't preach the Bible. And I said, well, every sermon is biblical. And I said, well, you don't preach it in order. And you're not used to, you're not used to preaching the Bible like I'm used to hearing it. And this is kind of a conservative area. And so I could kind of, I said, I think I understand. I think I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I said, well, thank you for sharing that with me. And he said, well, thanks for calling. Didn't think you'd call. So, you know, thanks for giving me a call. So it was, it was actually kind of worked out. It was kind of like no hard feelings. But then I thought about that mm -hmm. and I thought about, okay, if there was a part of the Bible that I was going to preach in order, what would it be? And so I thought the Sermon on the Mount. And so based on that, I did a one and a half year series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I did one sermon per verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And wow. what I told the congregation is, you know, this is arguably Jesus best description of what it means to follow him. And, and our church is called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. So if we want to be disciples, probably knowing what's in the Sermon on the Mount, really thinking that through might be a good thing to do. So let's just kind of meditate in it for a while here. So I went through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse. And so I couldn't skip over the hardest verses. So I had to preach um, a whole sermon on 
the verse in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, do not resist the evil person. So I had to, I couldn't go, I couldn't escape it. I had to preach a whole sermon just on yeah. that verse. And anyway, the more that I got into the logic of the Sermon on the Mount, the more it just became apparent to me that in the kingdom, the good news that Jesus was teaching was that this kingdom was now present on earth and that we could enter into it. And it was a kingdom of this sort of perfect love where you would love even your enemies and you wouldn't have reason to judge other people or hold people, hold people's guilt against them forever or anything like that. You could just afford to be this wildly generous and wildly, uh, you know, wildly forgiving. And you didn't even need to act with violence. You certainly didn't need to call people names or even act with violence towards people that there was just no reason you didn't have to do that. And the more that I got into the logic of, of all of that, I started to really to think that the, that the gospel had to do with this declaration of unconditional love for everybody in the name of the God who loves even enemies. And so there was no reason for violence. There was no reason for revenge. There was no reason for any of that. So the longer that I got that, that I became just immersed in that. And I started to think too, then that when it came to the word of God, I would say, well, the word of God is not a book. It's a person who became Mm -hmm. flesh that we might know who God is. And so the best way to know who God is, is to look at this person and see how they act and see what they said. That's our best bet. So let's just do that. And then anything else that we don't understand or that doesn't go with that, I don't know what we do with that, how you ha- how you want to handle it, how you want to put it in your theology. But ultimately, if it conflicts with the character of Christ, as far as I think of it, conflicts with the character of God. So that's just where I'm going to mm-hmm. that's just where, where I'm going to wind up. So it's kind of interesting how a criticism of my preaching ended up encouraging me to take something in order. And I did the Sermon on the Mount for a year and a half. And the person who changed the most was me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And so that malcontent who left your church may be as responsible as anyone else for your full embrace of Christian universalism. (laughs) Well, the more that, I mean, the more that I went through the Sermon on the Mount, the more consistent it seemed with my Christian universalism. It's like, well, there it is again. There it is again. There it is again. There it is again. Over and over and over. And I I did find there's so much scripture. Once you put on the lens of universal restoration and allow yourself to look at the Bible again, there are lots of passages that jump out at you. One of my favorite ones mm-hmm. is that sometimes people would say, well, I just believe the Bible. So that's just what I do. And I said, well, I believe the Bible too. Said, so as a matter of fact, let's look at Lamentations 331. See what that says together. So that was in the Old Testament. So we'd have to find that. But that verse says, for the Lord casts off no one forever. And I said, well, look, mm-hmm. this is in the Bible. I believe that. And they said, oh, yeah, well, you have to put that into context. And I would say, okay, so what you're right, telling right, me right, is right. what you're telling me is the first the first impression you might get about a verse of Scripture. Once you put it in context, you might get a different impression. Well, that could work with the hell passages, too, couldn't it? Because yeah. you could say that the first impression you're getting on some of these passages about hell would lead you to believe a certain thing. But from what you've just said, before I decide to believe that that certain thing is what it means, I probably need to look at the context. Well, that's all I'm doing. Right. But so, you're doing it outside of their their theological system. They've already identified which verses you're allowed to proof text <laughs> and which pr- verses you're not. And so you you're you know you're outside the lines there. Well, and that's one of the things that I'm doing. I mean, if you look at my book and how I outline the, the picture of God that I present, I kind of do a take on Calvinism in the book. 
I present a five, it's a five point picture of God, but my five, my five point picture is God is a loving parent to all who sincerely wants to save all who in Christ has covered the sin of all who is sovereign over all and who will be all in all. And then I just list five or six scriptures under each one of those and exegete them that have to do with that. And then I just kind of move on uh, to other considerations. But what's been surprising to me is just that moving through that exercise has exposed people to passages of scripture that they'd never had to deal with before and has opened up Mm -hmm. lots of really interesting kinds of uh, kinds of discussions. So people have generally appreciated that what I'm trying to do is put forth a biblical picture of God and then try to work out the rest of it, uh, the rest of the questions it raises by looking at the Bible as well. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think what I've learned there is I don't have to, I don't have to be afraid of using the Bible. As a matter of fact, yeah. people who, who have a strong value for the Bible seem to appreciate what I've done because it's so biblically based that what they've come away is they say, well, I don't agree with your conclusions, but I will give you that you, you are using, you you are using scripture. You're, you're trying to make scriptural mm-hmm. sense out of all of this. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, to, so to circle back, if I can, to, to the Christian century, finally. Yeah, um, let's do that. One, one time at Harbor, we, we, we did a, an evening where we, I basically made the case for Christian universalism. And the, the primary source I used was David Bentley Hart um, from his book, but it was an excerpt we ran in the Christian century. So for those out there who don't know, maybe you've never heard of the century, we're a monthly ecumenical magazine. Um, we have articles on faith, culture, politics, life. There's lectionary pieces that do deep dives, deeper dives into the scriptures. There's book reviews. Um, there's, a, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, but it's funny because I came straight from evangelicalism to a mainline seminary. I went to Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. It's a, it's a Presbyterian church, USA. Okay. I love the PCUSA. That was my introduction to them. Um, Harbor partners with both the United Church of Christ, the UCC, and the PCUSA. Okay. Uh, my ordination process that I'm at the end of is with the UCC. Um, so those are some of my... Now, now I'm immersed in the mainline because this magazine, it draws from all corners of mainline Protestant Christianity and, and beyond. We do mm-hmm. have some writers who are Jewish, who are maybe agnostics, who are other faith traditions, um, Roman Catholics, but we are largely Protestant mainline, our writers and readers. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love, I love the Christian century. And so it's been, there's a lot of resonance. There's a lot of overlap. I feel like between the work I do at Harbor online community and the content that we publish in the Christian century. Well, maybe that's kind of a good place for us to wrap up the conversation. And and so the Christian century becomes a place then for you to engage with kind of the larger, uh, I guess, mainline Protestant community. And as the online uh, sort of developer of community, what's involved with your job other than sending out the pithy emails for us to respond to? Yeah. So, um, you know, we have other people, a lot of, most of our editors are focused on making the magazine, what articles are going in the magazine. Um, Mm -hmm. then we have me and my one colleague who are kind of in unique roles. He is concerned with how are we going to get new readers? How are we going to introduce the magazine to new people? Mm -hmm. I am thinking about how do we engage the people who are already reading our magazine? So mm-hmm. anything that falls under engaging our readers kind of is on my plate. So that involves 
Yes, all of our email lists that we send out, we have several really good free email newsletters people can sign up for that mm-hmm. come to God every week. So I help to prepare all of those. Uh, the one of them I write, and that's the one where I, I send out questions that you sometimes respond to. Um, then there's our social media. I do a lot with our social media, our YouTube channel. I create video content um, related to the magazine. The letters to the editor section in the magazine is the one part of the magazine that I am kind of in charge of because that comes from our readers and I get to engage with them there. And then a really cool part of my job, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, is I've basically become a pen pal to a lot of our readers. We have readers all over the world. And when I send out that weekly editor's picks email with a Mm -hmm. question, um, some folks respond once and that's it ever. Other other folks like you have responded, I think, a few times. There are people who will write me an answer to that question every single week. And a lot of them are like <laughs> maybe 80 years old, retired clergy, re- yeah. retired clergy spouses. And um, it's so wonderful to get to know piece by piece, get to know their life story. And we, and I'll write them back every week if I can. And um, so that's a really, really cool part of, of my job as well. Okay. Well, so, uh, so everybody that may be listening to this uh, podcast, uh, if you want to get involved with the uh, Christian Century, you can go online and sign up for different emails. And I think I just saw recently, you've got a new digital platform. I think it's like $20 for a year subscription, first year subscription for a digital platform. And that gives you episodes that I think go all the way back to like 1946 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever our best deal is, it changes from time to time. I do think right now we do have, we do have a $20 digital subscription deal out there. So for a year, uh, whether you get print or digital, whatever price you pay, when you subscribe for a year, you not only get our current content that we're creating, but yeah, you get access to our archives. They, they go back, we say they go back to the 40s, but they honestly go all the way back to like 1900, most of our electronic archives. Um, really? So we can only guarantee that all the articles will be there from like 1944 on, but even all the way back to 1900, we have a lot of, a lot of um, articles that you can find in the database. Good. Hey, well, I've enjoyed uh, just reaching out and this is a very conversational kind of thing. We didn't have any idea what we're going to talk about. And so I just sent you an email and you got back to me and we're recording this. So it was a fun conversation. I hope some, I hope some people get connected with the Harbor uh, online church and find some relief there. And maybe you'll get some new pen pals from folks that will hear this episode and want to get involved with the, with, uh, with getting to respond to the, to the questions that you send out to us. Oh, I would love it. Yeah, anyone out there, feel free to check out Harbor, check out the Christian Century, our email newsletters. I would love to hear from anyone if they want to chat. So feel free to email me. We can do a Zoom call. Um, But thanks so much for inviting me to have this conversation, David. It's been a lot of fun. Well, you're welcome, John. Talk to you later. All right, bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.